This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friends Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is executive editor and vice president of National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is the director of the Center for Spirituality and professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Every couple of weeks, we gather to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. Heidi, happy Thanksgiving. What are you and your family doing, and how are you doing? Oh, happy Thanksgiving week to all of you, too. Here in Chicago, the public schools have been off all week. We had report card pickup on Monday, so the teachers had to work, but our kids are off today, tomorrow, Thursday, and Friday. So I'm working while everybody else is having fun. My husband just took the kids downtown to go ice skating on one of the public rinks in downtown Chicago. We have plans to go to Wisconsin to see my parents for Thanksgiving, but it's crazy getting ready for that in the days leading up to it. How about you guys? What are your Thanksgiving plans, Dan? So I'm going to spend Thanksgiving with my Friar community in in Chicago, so that'll be nice. Last year, the community decided for a number of reasons that we would go and spend Thanksgiving with our respective families, and which was nice in in its own way. So uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. It's that time of the semester, of course, where things are pretty busy. It's the final countdown, and then the Thanksgiving holiday always kind of throws a wrench into the gears, at least from the professor side of things. I'm sure the students appreciate the break, but Right after we come back from mid-semester, kind of midterm period, things are gearing up, heading toward the end, and then we have this other break. And so there's another kind of start and stop, start and stop. But when we come back from Thanksgiving, it's the real final push. And so I imagine, David, that's also your context right now too, right? How's Thanksgiving looking like, end of the semester? Well, I just have to say, a moment ago, you mentioned the final countdown, and immediately I had the little <laughs> trumpet fanfare from that 80s song, Go Through My Head. I think we'll probably get a copyright block if I actually hum it, but everybody knows the one that I'm talking about. So I just had a good laugh with that. We are doing what has become our normal practice for Thanksgiving holidays. Longtime listeners will recall that my wife's parents live near us here in our neighborhood here in Hyde Park. So we're going to spend the day at their house doing Thanksgiving. And then our 
normal practice is we go on a long walk all through Hyde Park. And for those that are unfamiliar with this particular part of Chicago, there's a wonderful set of parks in Hyde Park. Strangely enough, none of them are named Hyde Park, but we've got Washington Park and a couple of other parks that are wonderful to walk through. But also we we're very close to the lakefront. And so usually these long walks involve going both through forested areas and walking by the lakeshore. And it's just, it's a wonderful time. And weather permitting, that's what I'm going to be doing most of Thanksgiving Day, working off the turkey and the pumpkin pie. But I'm in the same boat as Heidi and her family. Our kids are off for this entire week. However, probably this is true for your family as well, Heidi. The teachers have assigned homework to our children, and there has been a lot of grumbling in the adult household about that. My uh, elder child especially is thinking that this is a grave injustice and that a break should be a break. A Sabbath should be a Sabbath. So <laughs> those are some of the conversations we're having in our house right now. <laughs> okay, no homework in this household, so I'm shocked by that. Our kids have some other work they're supposed to be doing. If you're part of the Chicago public school system, the applications for high schools are rapidly approaching, and some of those involve essays and my daughter has to write an essay for her religious ed confirmation class. So there's things to be doing. And I'm always looking for help around the house when everybody is off, too. Things are going to be a little pandemonium in our house for a while as we're redoing our basement. We live in this 100-year-old house that has, like many people, experienced water in our basement with some of the recent extreme weather we've been having all across the world. So we recently demoed, well, I didn't, some very hardworking crew of men came and demoed our basement, and we learned we have some cracks in our foundation. So we're going to be doing some repairs and hopefully some some making it prettier. But living through uh, re renovations is a spiritual practice in and of itself, I think. <laughs> Dan, I wanted to circle back to what you were saying about your time with your brothers in the friary. And I was wondering, for listeners who may be interested, is that a more formal occasion? Or is the friary designed at holiday times to feel more like a kind of family gathering? I'm, I'd be interested in what sort of the emotional tenor is there. No, it's definitely the latter. It's our immediate family. It's funny, when my parents visit me, and I've lived in a lot of different friaries and a lot of different cities over the years, they always uh, refer to that as visiting the in-laws. And so there is that kind of sense that so you're talking about spending Thanksgiving with your in-laws. So for us, it is our kind of immediate family. No, it's not formal in a kind of ecclesiastical sense. And Thanksgiving is a decidedly American holiday. So it is a civil holiday. Our schedule typically includes the same thing you would have for most Catholic religious communities, prayer and mass and that sort of thing. But then the celebration itself is drinks and turkey and sides and all the usual kind of fixings of American Thanksgiving. And over the years, we've invited folks as guests to come. So either extended family members of some of the brothers or in the past, when I've been teaching on faculty, let's say in Chicago, there might be lay students who are sticking around or international students. So We've had people over, and I'm not entirely sure who's, I know we have some guests coming this year as well, but to be honest with you, I'm drawing a blank, in part because I just came back from a pretty intensive tour the last few days, including giving a lecture in London, Ontario, in Canada at King's University College. So a shout out to all of my friends up there, to the students that I met, to the wonderful philosophy and theology faculty that I had some time to spend with and to, to colleagues in the campus ministry office and the president's office. They were very hospitable. It was great to 
to be up there. And then I went right from King's University College down to Denver for the American Academy of Religion Society of Biblical Literature annual conference. I know listeners, regular listeners have heard David and me talk about this conference over the years. It's, it's massive and it's returned, I'm happy to say, to some sense of normalcy. Last year was the first in-person version of the conference since the pandemic. And what normally brings about 10,000 scholars from around the world brought about three or 4,000. And so it felt very small by comparison, especially given these massive convention centers where these conferences take place. But this year, I don't know what the exact numbers were, but it felt a lot more like it had before the pandemic. So 2019 and earlier. So it was great to be there. Always great to be with fellow colleagues and to connect with friends and editors and publishers and the like. So that's a good sign, I think, that we're moving forward to something resembling normal. And when you describe the smaller meeting of the AAR, man, that actually makes me want to go back. And then when you say, but it's now looking more like it's normal numbers, that makes me want to stay away. So <laughs> I will admit, I, the pandemic has really changed my way of thinking about all of my future gatherings with other people. So I, I, I know that because of professional duties, I will eventually have to go back to these conferences. But I am really glad for these years that I've been able to sort of just be away from them and watch them from a distance. Well, and I just got back from a trip, too, which we'll be talking about later, because I went to Baltimore for part of the U.S. bishops meeting. And that was great for the first time back for me since before COVID to that particular meeting. And it was great to see other journalists, to meet up with staff from the USCCB and to cover the work of the bishops, which we, as I mentioned, we'll be talking about later. Maybe we can have just one quick go around where we can say, what is our favorite Thanksgiving food? So I'll start. My extended family, my wife's family, they know this about me, and because they love me, they accommodate this. I'm a big fan because I grew up in South Georgia. I'm a big fan of the jellied cranberries that come in a can that get pulled out of the can, still looking like the can, and are not mushed to make them look like real cranberries, but instead are sliced to maintain the shape of the can. That is my favorite part of Thanksgiving. And even though they would not normally have this on the table because my family loves me, they have this on the table because it's the one part of my growing up at Thanksgiving that I actually really liked as a child. And so I'm glad that they are able to maintain that tradition. And because of that, I eat the green bean casserole that they create. <laughs> well, I'm this betrays my Irishness, but all things potato are probably my favorite. So whether that's a kind of a mashed regular potato or whether they're sweet potatoes that are involved or some combination of the two, I got to go with the potato. Though, David, I have to say I've had, I've been really spoiled over the years, particularly when I was living with this brother, John, fellow fryer, who was an excellent, excellent cook. Just, yeah, an excellent cook. And he would make this cranberry sauce from scratch. And so it would have the real cranberries and orange rind and all this kind of stuff. But I have to say, I also have a soft spot for the, uh, the prefabbed can-shaped pseudo cranberry sauce that my dad really liked that too. So yeah, I grew up with that. Oh, we are you, not going to make it unanimous here because I am not <laughs> team. I love that cranberry orange. We also do that. And we also do a brandied cranberry, which I'm from Wisconsin where brandy is the alcohol of choice. So we also put brandy in our sweet potatoes. But my favorite Thanksgiving food is pumpkin pie. I love it. I make it all year round, and I especially love having it for breakfast. That's like my favorite breakfast the day after Thanksgiving is pumpkin pie, whipped cream, and coffee. Heidi, I love that pumpkin pie for breakfast as well. That sounds delicious. So listeners, we are going to be 
tackling three topics today on the show. In our first segment, we're going to be talking about the recent shooting at an LGBTQIA nightclub in Colorado Springs. If you find that subject at all triggering, I'm going to encourage you to jump ahead to our second segment, which is dealing with and recapping the national meeting of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. However, if you find that subject triggering as well, I'd encourage you to jump forward to our third segment where we will be looking ahead to the season of Advent. All of that is coming up here on The Francis Effect. Please stay with us. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, and I'm here with Dan Horan and David Dahl. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Just before midnight last Saturday, a 22-year-old man walked into Club Q, an LGBTQ dance club in Colorado Springs, with an AR-15-style rifle and a handgun and opened fire. As the Washington Post reported, quote, within minutes of midnight, Club Q became the latest in a never-ending series of places of pleasure and possibility that one person with a deadly weapon turned into an American address of tragedy and fear. In a matter of seconds, probably less than a minute, the city's police chief said, the man with the rifle shot and killed five people. At least 18 others were injured, end quote. In the midst of the violence and chaos, an Army veteran named Richard Fierro, who had been at Club Q with his family to celebrate a friend's birthday, ran towards the shooter and subdued him, pulling him down to the ground and using the assailant's own handgun to beat the shooter in the head. This is just the latest in an ever-growing list of mass shootings in the United States. We spoke a few weeks ago about another school shooting, this time in St. Louis with the apparent targeting again of the LGBTQ community at Club Q, many people have been thinking back to six years ago and the mass shooting at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, where 49 people were killed and more than 50 injured by a shooter. As the Post article concluded, quote, Now there was one more place on the long list of clubs and schools and theaters and other spots around the country where, in a single moment, by the actions of one person, what had been a center of joy, hope, and community was transformed into a memorial, a symbol of the searing violence that the nation seems powerless to stop. Dan, you happen to be about an hour north of Colorado Springs in Denver for the American Academy of Religion Conference. What was your experience of hearing the news of this shooting, and how are you thinking about it? 
Yeah, it was startling, as I think it was for many people. Every time we hear about a shooting like this, as you mentioned, Heidi, we talked not that long ago on this podcast about the school shooting in St. Louis. Sadly, there continue to be shootings beyond that. And so there's that initial grief and anger and frustration at hearing the news. And then it's not a desensitization, but I think we've just become so used to in this country news alerts of this sort. So I woke up a Sunday morning, saw this news of what happened on Saturday night. And I guess I was additionally shocked by the fact that I was so close, just about an hour away. In fact, I know that one of the Washington Post reporters who ordinarily covers the religion beat was at AAR, covering AAR this year. And she, I assume, once the news broke, drove down to Colorado Springs because I saw that she's been reporting from Colorado Springs with other colleagues. So it just goes to show this kind of overlap. I have a number of thoughts, so let me just put some on the table, and I'm very interested to see what the two of you think. One of the first things that that strikes me about what happened as the story has unfolded and authorities have given us greater details is that despite what NRA kind of folks and lobbyists will suggest, it's not good people with a gun that stop bad people with a gun. In this case, it was an unarmed army veteran who stopped a bad guy with a gun. And I think there's something worth reflecting on there that, you know, instead of a shootout that could have gone down, you know, somebody approaching this gunman from a distance where other bystanders could still have been harmed, there was a very brave action that seems to have taken place where, where this veteran intervened. And so I think, as I understand the facts, that's fair to call this person a hero, certainly somebody who acted with courage, risked his own life to, to save others, and clearly had by virtue of, of disarming or at least temporarily delaying the shooter from hurting or killing more people. I have two ad additional thoughts. You asked me, Heidi, how am I thinking about this? But the first is to see the very slow trickle in of the kind of pro forma thoughts and prayers genre that we've seen from both politicians and other public figures, as well as church leaders. And I'm str struck by Archbishop Aquila's comment. He said this was tragic or something to that effect. But I have not forgotten, as I'm sure some of our listeners have either, that Archbishop Samuel Aquila is actually one of the most anti-LGBTQ bishops in the country. And in fact, last spring, in spring April 2021, he gave some remarks at a conference in which he likened same-sex marriage to bestiality. Uh, had other dismissive and derogatory things to say that are clearly homophobic and transphobic. And so I don't know how to square what I hope is a sincere statement on his part about the tragedy and prayers for those who have suffered. On the other hand, I want to be very clear that the sea of homophobic and transphobic and anti-LGBTQ statements and policies, the document that was leaked not that long ago that was published by many outlets that revealed the internal, again, anti-LGBT agenda of the Archdiocese of Denver and its instruction to its Catholic schools and to its offices, that contributes to this violence. This is complicity. And what motivates somebody? I know that the authorities are continuing to investigate, you know, this 22-year-old man who went into this club with this assault rifle and with this handgun and killed five people and injured more than 18. The church has the church leaders, the Archbishop of Denver has responsibility in this, and I think that needs to be named. I think the bishops need to be held to account for their contributions in creating an atmosphere in which violence against already vulnerable people in the LGBTQ community is made manifest. It's a contribution to that violence. The other thing I'll say is, um, and I don't know that I have anything new to say in this regard, which is we continue to suffer from a gun problem in this country. 
And as is likely the case, this person, but again, I, I don't know for sure because the reporting is still live as we're recording this. It seems very likely if previous incidents are any kind of indication that he probably acquired this weapon or these weapons legally. And so this is not a matter of, quote unquote, black market, kind of bad guys finding weapons in the alley. This is a problem we have as a society. So, yeah, I'm curious, what do you two think? What are your responses? So I just want to pick up on what you were saying about the leadership. And I want to say it goes from the leadership and it floods down into the laity and all the rank and file in between. So I am, as I know several of you are, I am close with members of the LGBTQIA community here in Chicago and in other places around the country. And there was, as would be expected, a huge outpouring of emotion around the aftermath of this shooting. And in the wake of that outpouring, particularly on social media, we saw examples of laity and deacons in some cases lashing out at hurting LGBTQIA people. I'm thinking particularly of a deacon in Livermore, California, who wrote a kind of vicious response to a heartfelt social media post and was later reprimanded by his bishop and had his social media account. I don't know if it was expunged or whether he removed it himself, but before he did that, he issued an apology. But there's a reflex that has been trained and habituated into a certain style of Catholic to look at this and say, well, they deserved it. You may be hearing in my voice a kind of anger about this because I am intensely angered by the way in which we think about oftentimes the vulnerable, any vulnerable populations from our relative comfort and safety within our pews. And we tend to think, oh, tisk tisk, those poor people. Well, if they didn't just live like that, then they wouldn't be targets. And I'm sorry, but I've got no I've got no more patience for that. And I've got no more patience for the leadership or the laity having a kind of comfortable response to this kind of violence. And this is a part of the kind of way in which there's a real fracture in terms of how the church in America is thinking about issues of life right now. And we've talked about that before here on the program, but there's a real myopia, a real short-sightedness about certain types of life issues where other types of life issues where real vulnerable populations are being slaughtered or are being targeted and are being subject to stochastic terrorism, where these kind of vague calls go out and then somebody finally responds, but nobody gets to take responsibility because no one can directly trace a line between the comments of a bishop and the firing of a gun. And I'm just incensed by it. I'm incensed by it. My heart is with these people that are hurting in Colorado Springs right now. My heart is breaking with them and for them. I'm just, I'm, I'm incredibly angry right now over all the aspects going on around this, whether we're talking about Bishop Aquila or Matt Walsh. I'm just, I'm angry at all of them right now. Well, I agree with you, David and Dan, that the reaction, especially in Catholic circles, can be telling. As of when we're recording this, which we're rec- we normally record on a Wednesday, we're recording early on a Tuesday morning to get this uh, the podcast out by Thanksgiving. I have not seen a statement from the U.S. Bishops Conference in any way responding to this, although I did notice that they retweeted another bishop and said they join with their brother bishop and the community of Colorado Springs in lamenting this violent act and praying for all those impacted. But no official statement, just that tweet. And like you, Dan, it's one thing to say, oh, we're so sad about this. 
but not turn around and look at how policies and other statements and other ways of treating LGBTQ people might be contributing to this violence. I will hold up as just especially helpful. There was a statement, and I think it was one of the first ones that I saw from a Catholic group that came from the president of the Paulist Fathers, Father Rene Costanza, saying he condemned not only the attack, but the harmful rhetoric towards those in the LGBT community, quote, violence targeting our LGBTQ sisters and brothers must stop. And he went on to say that rhetoric that dehumanizes and disrespects the inherent dignity of those who identify as LGBTQ is unacceptable, including that espoused by members of our own Catholic Church and other faith communities. So I was grateful that there are some church leaders who are willing to step up and say that. I will say that part of how the sausage is made here at the podcast is we have to decide on our topics. And I sometimes look back at, at, well, what did we cover, you know, last episode or the episode before? And it's sad to look back that it was only two episodes ago that we led with another tragic shooting at the school in St. Louis. And it was only the last episode where we talked about the anti-LGBTQ policies in Denver. And so to say these things are not connected, again, like you said, David, maybe not a direct line, but clearly they're connected. And people are seeing those connections, even if the leaders are not acknowledging them. And I want to speak to listeners, particularly listeners who do not identify with or have friends in the LGBTQIA community. You may think, well, this is very distant from me. What can I do? And I want to point to a kind of exemplar from recent years, a colleague and friend of mine, Dr. Larisha Hawkins, who at the time was at Wheaton College and is now at Union Theological Seminary. But when there was anti-Muslim rhetoric going around and there was the travel ban from the Trump administration being promulgated, Larisha Hawkins decided that she needed to be visibly identified with the targeted community. And so she, even though she was a Christian, she began wearing a hijab during Lent. And she ended up being fired from her position after a long and extended, very public exchange about theology and what it meant to have solidarity and what it meant to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and all of that. But out of this she grew uh, an ethic that she calls embodied solidarity, where if you have comfort and privilege and some amount of power in the structures and you see those around you who are vulnerable, who are being targeted, it is your job as a Christian to step into the breach between the vulnerable and those who would harm them and to use whatever comfort and power that you have to block them from getting the full brunt of that. In Dr. Hawkins's case, it was being visibly identified with the Muslim community. There are things that we can be doing to visibly identify with our targeted, vulnerable brothers and sisters and non-binary persons in the immediate vicinity of our communities, but also in our nation. And I would really just invite listeners to prayerfully go into their imaginations about how they might stand in solidarity with these communities. I think that's a really good point. And I think it's also important to realize, too, that this is not something apart from the church's tradition, right? So LGBTQ people are baptized members of the body of Christ, are the church as well. And so 
you're right, David, to say that those who may be cisgender men and women who are straight or something like this, they, they may not be immediately identified with this community, but we are, at least as a matter of faith, united to one another by the Holy Spirit as the body of Christ, as the people of God. And as Gaudium et Spes, the church's pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world begins, that the joys and hopes, the griefs and anxieties of the people of this day are the joys and hopes, griefs and anxieties of the church, of the people of God. And so this is not something, there's no innocent bystanding here. That, But I think the points that have been made by all three of us are worth just reiterating for our listeners that this is a form of sinfulness. It's a form of evil to target groups like this, not just with physical violence, as we saw tragically in Colorado Springs this weekend, but verbally as well. And as David, as you said, it doesn't always trace one-to-one the incitement and the contributions that are made by church leaders and those who are preaching. You mentioned a deacon, but there are lots of pastors and priests, and there are lay people, other religious who are contributing to this. Those of us who hear that sort of thing need to stand up and say this is unacceptable. It's something that needs to be held to account because it's continuing to you know, increase the danger to the lives and safety of our fellow siblings, and that needs to end. Sadly, as Heidi, you mentioned a moment ago, it's only been two episodes since we last talked about this. I fear that we will be talking about violence like this again, especially that targeted toward the LGBTQ LGBTQ community in the future. But at this point, maybe we can end the segment by saying that we really do hold our sisters and brothers and other siblings in prayer, and we pray for the transformation of the hearts of those who continue to demonize and vilify those in in already vulnerable positions like those in the LGBTQ community. So with that, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Father Dan Haran and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops met for their annual November plenary meeting in Baltimore last week, with several votes on the agenda signaling what to expect from the church leadership in the coming years. At the top of the agenda was an election for leadership of the conference, The bishops chose the Archbishop for Military Services, Timothy Broglio, as president. Broglio has blamed homosexuality for the clergy abuse crisis and during the coronavirus pandemic supported vaccine exemptions for military members on religious grounds, even after Pope Francis made it clear that Catholic teaching did not oppose the vaccines. Broglio previously served as a private secretary for the late Cardinal Angelo Sedano, who was Secretary of State under Pope John Paul II. Sedano was a starch promoter and defender of the founder of the Legionnaires of Christ, who sexually abused seminarians and young boys and fathered several children. The bishops elected Baltimore Archbishop William Lorry as vice president. For the number three position of secretary, Oklahoma City Archbishop Paul Coakley was chosen. In 2018, Coakley was one of several U.S. bishops who issued statements of support for former Vatican Ambassador Archbishop Carlo Vigano, who had called on Pope Francis to resign. The outgoing president, Los Angeles Bishop Jose Gomez, in his final address, echoed the culture war mentality that defined his term as president. He said that American society is moving, quote, hard and fast to uncompromising secularism, unquote, 
and added that, quote, traditional norms and values are being tested like never before, unquote. The bishops also voted to postpone a substantial revision of their political teaching document titled Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship. The document was first written in 2007, more than five years before Francis was made pope. It has been updated several times with new introductory notes, including the one in 2019 that named the issue of abortion as, quote, preeminent, unquote. At last week's meeting, the bishops decided they did not have time to revamp the document before 2024. So they voted to postpone revisions to it until after that presidential election. Heidi, you attended portions of the meeting in Baltimore. What were your overall thoughts about the discussions and actions on the part of the bishops? Well, I said in our opener how great it was to be back at that meeting to see some of my NCR colleagues who were there, to see other journalists, secular and from religious publications who were attending and to just, it's a a big Catholic news event. So as a news junkie, it it was great to be there. But I have to say, I only spent a day and a half and already I was discouraged. It really was just business as usual. You know, the big thing that everyone was looking at was the election of the president. And just to explain briefly for folks, normally there is one exception, but normally whoever's serving as vice president steps into the president role. In this instance, when the current vice president is going to hit the retirement age of 75 or would hit that retirement age during the time they would be serving. So that was the bishop from Detroit. So he was not eligible to run for president. So they had to have an election. So it was just kind of a chance for new leadership. And they send out a slate, they elevate a slate of 10 candidates. And then there's a vote, a series of votes in which the person has to get a majority. So as votes split among people and then you see how the vote goes, everybody decides. And a number of folks had predicted that Broglio would win. He was the quote unquote conservative candidate. And Archbishop Aitchen of Seattle was seen as the more progressive candidate. And Lori was emerging as this compromised middle candidate. And Broglio did not get elected in the first vote. It actually took three votes until he was elected. So people weren't surprised by that, but it was discouraging. This is not just a conservative guy. This is a guy who, during the coronavirus, doubled down on the whole vaccination issue. Even as the U.S. bishops and the Pope were saying, there's not a Catholic teaching that says you need to be exempt from this vaccination. In fact, our teaching encourages you to be vaccinated so that you can protect other people. He uh, wrote a letter and was arguing for religious exemption for members of the military, uh, his archdiocese. He's also a person who has linked homosexuality and the clergy sex abuse scandal with serious academic people who study these things say there is not a link. And when he was asked about that at the kind of mini press conference that followed his election, he doubled down on it and said yes. I still believe that. And then, but most concerning is his connection to Sedano. And he was asked about that as well in the press conference in Baltimore after his election. And he basically said, well, hindsight is twenty twenty. Now, people who carefully have been following this, though, will, will note that the allegations about Maciel that came out in the Hart- Hartford paper were while he was still working for Sedano. So this idea that all of this became clear once he was gone, is not true. And he didn't seem very prepared for that press conference, to be honest with you. Lori was then elected on subsequent votes as the vice president. And then Coakley, again, a pretty conservative. Supporting Vigano is an anti-Francis move. And so 
Now, in a number of the other elections for committee heads, in most of those elections, the, the more conservative candidate won. So more culture war stuff ahead from the conference is about all I can predict. And I have to say it was pretty discouraging. So what did it look like for you guys reading about it from afar? Well, I, yeah, I was disappointed. Shocked, but not surprised. Is that the expression? You know, it's interesting. I had a column due last week, as, as you know, well, Heidi, as, as the editor of, of NCR. And I had originally, I was thinking of a couple different approaches. What would I write about? And I'm happy to have gone with what I did. But actually, my colleague, Michael Sean Winters, the headline of his column last week at the end of the week was exactly the line of thinking that I was pursuing as I was considering this, which is, you know, although he and I have very different perspectives on a lot of things, on, on numerous occasions, we do overlap. We bring different perspectives. You know, I as a theologian, he as a political journalist. This line, the headline, as it was summarized, is exactly right, which is, here's another sign of the increasing irrelevance of, of the U.S. Catholic Church and, more importantly, the U.S. Catholic leadership in this country to the country. Don't, this is going to sound like really tongue-in-cheek, but I don't really intend it to be. I'm trying to, I'm losing, or I'm running out of metaphors or analogies to use to describe the situation. And I think it's not unlike what with the Republican Party and secular politics in this country, which is that there is this with the 2022 midterm elections, you see the House of Representatives being very split. I think if you look at the votes, as you mentioned, Heidi, it was three votes to get the current president elected of the USCCB. But there was actually a, a kind of hefty amount of people who were voting against that, right? He didn't win in a landslide. He won marginally. And I think part of that is a split of interest and of ideology and perspective. And I think a lot of the talk with secular politics these days, particularly with the governance of the House, is that because of this split between these sort of two ideological worlds in the U.S. Congress, it's Democrats and Republicans, the more sort of extreme members of each caucus is, are going to be the ones driving the ship and having control of leverage. I think that's what I see play out here. In this case, you have somebody who, in the playbook of Marjorie Taylor Greene, is not going to apologize for things that are patently and empirically false, such as the link between homosexuality and child abuse. The John Jay study made that clear more than 20 years ago, and sociology studies and other studies subsequently, as you alluded to, have totally torpedoed. That is nothing but homophobic. And then these other issues, too, that as you said he's, he wasn't prepared to address, are really problematic. These forms of association and previous decisions, policies, and actions need to be accounted for, especially when you're putting yourself forward for this leadership position in the American hierarchy. So yeah, it's troubling. That's what I have to say. And I think the other positions that were filled, by and large, reflect, you know, Michael Sean Winter's assessment that aligns with mine, which is, you know what this means? It's not going to affect most Catholics and most people in this country. They don't care. And this is the deepening of these culture warrior issues is only going to spell the decline in affective religiosity and institutional belonging. I want to pick up on what you were saying about the ideological split that we're seeing here. You know, I work with students and they're very astute. And one of my students this week in responding to a reading in one of my classes talked about a movie that came out a couple of years ago called The Two Popes, which is a fictionalized account of a meeting between Benedict XVI and then Bergoglio, who, was going to be, who became Pope Francis. And there's a point in that fictional account where the character playing Benedict XVI, Anthony Hopkins, says the church cannot change. And this, I think, is the crux of what we're looking at right now. In my way of thinking about this as a scholar, I've begun to call it the rift between authoritarian Catholicism and synodal Catholicism. 
the church that dictates versus the church that listens. And we see now in the leadership a real holding on to the idea that the church must be the authority and cannot be in any way subject to criticism or willing to listen to anyone, particularly the suffering. That seems to be the message coming from the leadership of the USCCB. I think that the laity is living in a different church. We're living in a church that wants to and attempts to listen to each other and particularly to listen to pain. When we look at the younger generations, their empathy and their willingness to sort of look at institutions with cynicism is all bound up in this idea that we have to listen to the suffering among us and we can't simply repeat the institutional bigotries that we've had before. But at the top of our leadership right now, the signal that is coming, at least from the American wing of the church, is we are doubling down on institutional bigotry and even irrational misinformation. And that really concretizes the ideological shift that you're talking about, Dan. And for me, it's the most troubling aspect of all of this. And I think that you're right that most rank and file people in the pews don't care right now, but I think that they will be profoundly affected by this in days and years to come. Yeah. And if I could just add a little coda to that, I appreciate those insights, David. And that's a really important distinction you're making, the naming. But I also want to say, too, that, that the irrelevance that the church leadership in this country is exhibiting in this election and the people who are in positions that are very public and forward, I'm not saying that that they need to change their views to align with quote unquote secular ideology or like the latest fads or cultural interests, because that's how reality gets dismissed by a lot of these characters. And it needs to stop. The previous president did that. And he did it on his way out, too. That's Archbishop Gomez. And I think Broglio's is actually much more hostile and much more vocal about some of these issues. At least Gomez was a very pastoral person. Broglio does not have that kind of history, to be perfectly honest. So it's, I think it's only going to be the temperature is going to be dialed back up. And it's a sort of self-righteous understanding of truth, as if they're the only holders of truth, those who hold this view. And to your point about a synodal church, like this, the, the church is not uh, a corporation. It is not a democracy. It is not a monarchy. It is a communion of communions. And I would be remiss if I didn't emphasize that this failure to hear the spirit, as you say, David, in and through the, the body of Christ, the census fidelium, is a disregarding of the Holy Spirit in the first order. I think on a second level, what it is, is a a reflection of arrogance. And the third thing that I have to raise is if the church is a communion of communions, these local churches in communion with the Church of Rome, I have to raise some real questions. I hate to use the S word, but what, I mean, what else defines schism other than refusing to be in communion with the Bishop of Rome, who symbolizes the communion of communions? And gosh, that seems to me very close to being outside of communion with the Bishop of Rome. So, yeah, I've heard similar things from readers and other observers is this frustration with what happened at the bishops meeting, but even more so a dismissal of who cares what they're doing because this is so irrelevant to what's going on in my own personal faith journey or at my parish or in my spiritual community. I think what I would note, though, and this was it's interesting to me, Dan, that you brought up how the votes were closer than they maybe have been. So there is a lot of discussion about how with the appointment of bishops or Francis Friendly bishops, that the conference may be moving towards where there would be bishops, enough of them to get a majority to vote in less culture warrior type conservative leaders. But as we noted in our editorial at NCR, and we can provide a link to that, where we did say we thought the culture warrior choice of Broglio was a mistake, we noted that there was a lot of nice talk 
about synodality, about listening and coming together and that kind of stuff. But then when it comes time for actions, the actions don't, and priorities, what are the things that are the main priorities on the agenda? So the other thing to announce, as in there was a nice, like I said, there was a nice conversation about synodality with a report from Bishop Danny Flores about how the process was happening. The other piece of news that kind of got buried in a lot of things, but that struck me was that the Eucharistic Congress that is planned for the summer of 2024, that's this three-year process that's very focused on a certain theology of the Eucharist, shall we say, that they were announcing how this three-year process is moving forward and noting that the $28 million price tag has been now cut to $14 million, which is a pretty substantial cut in a project. And it was always being funded by a lot of outside donations anyway. And I think this deserves some more looking into. But I thought that was that is still a priority is something like that Eucharistic Congress, but it's being cut back somewhat because the money was clearly excessive. Well, and even that too, even the, the pivoting origin of this Eucharistic focus was, we shouldn't forget, a culture warrior impetus, right? It was the after the Vatican intervened and others in the wake of some bishops wanting to put out a document basically instructing the denial of communion to democratic politicians, this was a pivot to save face. And I'm not surprised that probably it's a lack of funding. People are not going to support this. And so that, that raises some real questions. But I would also just say that's another form of missing the point. And that was noted, I saw in a lot of commentary on Twitter and social media by theologians and journalists and others who were paying attention, maybe a bit, you know, maybe not at the site in Baltimore, but seeing the reports coming out, And they're saying, like, it's curious, the things that are not being addressed. And there was one intervention from the floor, if I recall correctly from the reporting, of a bishop who talked about all the things young people are talking about. And there are things that we have talked about in the past. There are things that that have been expressed, for instance, in the Synod on young people and vocation in 2018. And instead, the bishops, especially the ones who control the agenda, who are these culture warrior bishops, are talking about things that are just completely irrelevant to the lives of actual people and families. And that's not a knock at, on the Eucharist, by the way, <laughs> you know, obviously not. But I think, yeah, there's just a lot to unpack there. Well, listeners, if you've been with us through season after season, you know that we are in turns optimistic and cynical about these kinds of changes in leadership in the church. We hope for the best, but long experience has shown us that sometimes there are not necessarily the best things to come from this. So we will be keeping a careful look at what is happening with the USCCB as their policies begin to unfold in 2023 and beyond. And you can bet we will be talking about it here on The Francis Effect. But for now, we're going to turn from this to another subject. We'll be back in just a moment. Please stay with us. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and David Dahl. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Over the past 11 seasons here at The Francis Effect, we have often taken time to notice and reflect parts of the Church's liturgical calendar. Time in the Church is marked and measured differently from calendar time, and our year flows differently from a calendar year. On November 27, 2022, that is next week as we're recording this, 
the church enters into a new liturgical year as we embark on the season of Advent. Over the course of four consecutive Sundays, we will gather and prepare our hearts for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Nativity and in the celebration of Christmas. Longtime listeners to the Francis Effect will know that we have done some deep dives into Advent in seasons past, and we will link to some of those episodes in the show notes. But today, and especially with some of the other topics we've already covered in this episode, we wanted to step back from the analysis, from the breaking news, and just talk a bit about some of the things we'll be doing together with our loved ones as we celebrate Advent this year. David, why don't you start us off? How will the family Dalt be getting into the Advent mood this year? I get teased by my oldest child because for the last couple of years, especially with COVID happening, I put up Christmas lights early and I string them around various windows in the house and then I leave them up for months until literally the bulbs are burning out and they burn night and day. They are sort of the way that I begin all of this. And it's a very secular way, I understand. It's not like a creche or a nativity, or an advent calendar or anything like that. But for me, just having some light as the daylight darkens is an important piece. And we go out on walks every day. And so for me also, it's been helpful as we're coming back to the house to be able to look up at our window and to see those lights in the window. That for me has been a real anchor. And so that's kind of low hanging fruit, but that's very much how we begin the Advent season. This is the week when those lights will go up again and they will stay in our windows until the bulbs burn out, basically. Right around this time of year is when everyone starts having the debate about whether the Christmas preparations are happening too soon or not. And generally, I'm not one to argue about that. I've worked in Catholic spaces where we were not allowed to put up Christmas decorations until well into the Advent season. I understand that people want to jump the gun, especially during COVID. We talked about how people wanted to get some light in that darkness and get their decorations up early. But I guess even I was a little shocked and was not quite ready for Christmas music the day after Halloween. So I'm pushing back and trying to at least put off Christmas until after Thanksgiving, which is, of course, when Advent does start. I will say that for our family who experienced a very tragic death of a young person this year, the holidays are going to be particularly difficult. And that includes Thanksgiving. Every season has been difficult. And I know that Christmas will be particularly hard for our family. So I've been thinking a lot about how to maybe do it differently in a way that can feel meaningful. Last year, I think I shared that I had been, or maybe that was Lent, I was reading reflections by this Protestant theologian, Kate Bowler, who has written some really great books and who is big on social media and sharing her own journey with as a young mother with cancer. And she has a new Advent series out called The Season of Waiting and waiting and waiting. And so I may turn to her reflections again this year, but also I'm thinking about just being gentle with myself and with my whole family and with everyone, my colleagues, everybody, and just recognize that for a lot of people, the holidays are difficult and the goal is just to get through them and to try to take things, as we say in the 12-step communities, one day at a time. So not to be a downer because I know Christmas is about joy, but but there's a lot of there's a lot going on in the world and in people's lives. It's something to remember. What about you, Dan? What are you doing for Advent? Yeah, Advent is always the most stressful of the liturgical seasons for me, as it is, I know, for everybody. And I don't even have a spouse or children, so I can't imagine my brothers and their families and kids and both of you with your kids and everything. I mean, 
it's the end of a school year. The days are shorter. The nights are longer. The weather and where all three of us are is, is a lot colder. There are a lot of things that, that kind of conspire together to make this season stressful. And then you add to that the ever-growing pressures for gift-giving and all this kind of stuff. So I feel that it's always been a struggle for me in part because of the way that it aligns with my ministry over more than a decade, which is higher education and grades have to be in and it's the end of the semester. So yeah, I struggle with it, to be honest with you. I will say that one of the things I do cherish is, and we talked about this kind of at the outset of this segment, is the rhythm of the liturgical year, though it doesn't align precisely with, as we said, with the calendar year. Nevertheless, in the daily prayers of the church, the liturgy of the hours, there is a, a decided shift. So the readings change, the antiphons change. And so there's a, there's a feel to that that's a little bit more gradual, even than the four Sundays, where we have the shifting both for the historical and breaking of the incarnate word. So we have the readings in the first two weeks about like John the Baptist announcing the coming of Jesus, these Isaiah readings and so forth, to sort of a shift to the second coming of Jesus, which happens closer in the reading cycle as we draw nearer to Christmas. For me, it's the last week of Advent that's always the most important to me and the most meaningful. And that is that coincides again with the rhythm of the Liturgy of the Hours, especially in evening prayer or Vespers. And that is with the antiphon, the Magnificat antiphon, the evening prayer antiphon that changes to famously the O antiphons, which are excerpts from the book of Isaiah and they are, for those who may never have heard of this before, though I'm pretty sure David and I at least have talked about this over the years on this podcast. If you're familiar with O Come Emmanuel, that song, each of those verses is a reflection of one of the O antiphons, which if I'm going to be a particularly a particular stickler about when certain music can be played, as you were saying, Heidi, I'm, I'm a big proponent of not singing O Come, O Come Emmanuel until the last week, until December 17th onwards. <laughs> and so, but I'm afraid most parishes jump right into that on the first Sunday of Advent because it's a, it's a classic. Everybody knows. It's a banger. It really is. And yeah, so I think what we're touching on is we really do not have in the wider culture and even in the wider Catholic culture or Christian culture, a real sense of delineated time. We are used to blurring season into season. And this, the distinctiveness of Advent versus the, the distinctiveness of Christmas has really become a kind of blurred thing, not just in the commercial space, but also, as you're pointing to, Dan, in the liturgical space. I think I, if I were to analyze this, part of it is because we really like the payoff, that we tend to really want to minimize anticipation and we really like to kind of maximize payoff. And so Christmas is the payoff, right? Christmas is when the baby arrives. Christmas is when the presents arrive, so we really want to get to that and talk about that, both in our commercial spaces but also in our liturgical spaces. It's a similar problem to not being able to really live into Good Friday and to rush to Easter, I think. And you may have different opinions, but that's just my quick take on this. I also think it's important to emphasize that Christmas is not just one day in the liturgical calendar. It's an octave like Easter, and so there are actually, it's an eight-day-long celebration. Literally. So the calendar is the season of Christmas continues. So the 26th is still Christmas. The 27th is still Christmas. The 28th is still Christmas. And the liturgies, both of the Liturgy of the Hours, so the daily office, the prayers, as well as the celebration of the Eucharist emphasizes that, right? It's a continuation. It's an eight day long day, which is, I think, invites us to think about um, the holiday, but differently too, right? So to that point, David, where there's this blurring between Advent and Christmas, 
we can separate this a little bit because if one finds themselves because of family obligations, these other things, you know, really stressed out on Christmas Day itself, Christmas Eve, Christmas morning, all the family obligations and the rest, all the cooking and so forth, gift giving and wrapping paper recycling, then remember, you know, the next day is still Christmas. Let's live into that. Let's lean into it. I guess I would also note that we do some of the traditional Advent stuff in our family. So we get an Advent wreath. We light it every night at dinner. We say a prayer then. We also have a Jesse tree, which is a felt banner thing that has a little scripture reading each day that talks about the family tree of Jesus leading up to his birth. So those are helpful family traditions that help us to do something besides just shop during the Christmas preparation season. I also have tried And we have, as a family, an extended family, have tried to think about our our shopping and our purchasing habits during Christmas when, I don't know what the stats are, but some huge portion of our GDP as a country is spent, right, in the last couple weeks before Christmas. In addition to trying to shop at small businesses, sustainable businesses, these kinds of things, we have tried to move in our family away from purchasing so much stuff to purchasing experiences, especially experiences we can do with other members of our family. And as a person who had to clean out a very packed hoarder-esque basement before we could start the aforementioned remodel, I'm very aware of how stuff can overtake your life. So purchasing theater tickets, concert tickets, parts of vacations for fellow family members so that we can have experiences rather than just another thing that's going to be in the donate pile the next year are ways that we try to look at our spending habits during Christmas. Well, I think that's a really important practice, especially for kids, right? And how they're thinking about, as David, you were saying, the sort of payoff of Christmas, in this case, maybe literally in terms of gifts or gift cards and that sort of thing. You know, I'm also struck by the world in which we find ourselves. And I've written about this before, and I'll probably talk about this or write about this again as we get closer into the season of Advent. But there's an essay by the great Trappist monk and spiritual writer Thomas Merton, where he talks about Advent as a hope or a delusion and challenges the sort of sense of Christian optimism that is too often the kind of quick go-to that Christmas is really about, especially as we anticipate the second coming of Christ, about God who enters the world and just cleans up our mess, (laughs) you know, that everything will be better. We'll get a reset, a new heaven and a new earth in a very superficial way. And Merton makes this point, actually, no, God entered into a world that is deeply violent and messy and conflicted and challenging in which there's inequality and suffering. And that the one with whom God identifies, the one that God chose to enter the world as is the one on the margin, the vulnerable, the suffering, the undocumented immigrant family, the single pregnant woman before she's married. Like all these, you think about these factors that can be easy to brush off or to make abstract as we approach Christmas and thinking about the coming of Christ into the world. But when we look at the reality of it, the practicality of it, God enters the world as Jesus of Nazareth, a a totally vulnerable infant human child in an occupied territory where religious oppression is real under an imperial government that's controlled from without this threat of violence that leads to the fleeing to Egypt and so forth. Like from the very beginning, the experience of God in this world is one that so many, actually the majority probably of the human population can relate to. And I think that challenges us in two ways. One is for those of us who live fairly affluently and comfortably, and I would say that most of us in developed nations, particularly here in the United States, regardless of one's kind of social location or class, 
compared to some of those folks, including Jesus's immediate family, we're probably doing fairly well, right? I know not everyone is, but relatively speaking. But then the second thing is to think about all the stuff that we see, some of the topics we've talked about already, whether it's anti-LGBTQ sentiment or gun violence or income inequality or political strife, to remember that God continues to enter into this world. God is present in this world as part of the Christian message. And it's what do we make of that and how does that inform the way we respond to these signs of our times, right? So not looking for sort of a Pollyannish, God's going to come and take everything away and make it all nice, but that God dwells with us in the midst of this and experienced it in part through Jesus himself. So that's one thing I'm going to carry with me. I invite our listeners to think about as well and to look that essay up. It's in a little volume called Seasons of Celebration that uh, takes together Merton's reflections on the liturgical year, but it's called Advent, Hope, or Delusion. Check it out. And I think that's probably where we'll end for today. We're not over yet with season 11, so stay tuned. In two weeks, we'll be back. But I know on behalf of David and Heidi, we wish you all a very blessed and safe and warm, especially if you're in the northern part of the globe, Thanksgiving this Thursday. It's great to be with you all. We'll see you in two weeks. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.